You know, this is the point in time where we are going to change and transition this series that we're in right now called What's Your Story? We began a few weeks ago before, before Easter saying that, you know, we recognize that the power of Christ's story can transform lives. But a lot of people will not even give ear to that story because they might, for whatever reason, have something against the idea of Christianity that they don't want to hear that story. But God uses not only that story, but the story of those whose lives he's changed. And so today, we are going to transition as we've been talking about the the story of Christ, connecting that how he has faced everything you and I have faced here on this earth, but has faced it victoriously and without fault, that he becomes the model by how we can handle life's trials, that as we've looked at that to where we can then resonate with that, now we begin to see how our stories intersect with his story, how his story impacts ours. And so over the next five weeks, we're going to have different people's stories being shared over different things that come regularly in people's lives. And today, we're going to discuss doubt. Doubt, as it can be a huge challenge to each of our souls. And so I'm going to ask you right now to turn your Bibles to James chapter 1. We're going to be reading in verses 6 to 8 to begin. In James chapter 1, verses 6 and 8. And I'm going to just confess right now, I recognize that where we're starting in this text is in the middle of a thought. And so it's not going to seem like a natural place to start, but that's intentional. And so it's going to be kind of in the middle of a thought, but we're going to get there. And so let's begin by reading in verse 6 of James chapter 1. It says, But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt, because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all that they do. The importance of sharing our story and being able to bring into our minds the realities of what we face day to day is to get you to a place of where you realize your story is worth sharing. I've heard many people say over and over and over again, since I was young and even since I've been become older in midlife, and that is my story isn't anything special to be shared. Heard it? Do you feel it? My story isn't something that somebody needs to hear. My story isn't something that's worth sharing. My story really isn't that interesting. Let me tell you, if Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior, that idea that your story is not worth sharing is an absolute lie, and it comes from the enemy himself. And I rebuke the idea of it. And you've not, you've, those of you who have been in this church for 10 years, have you ever heard me rebuke and use that term? All right, so this is, if you're new here, please forgive me, 
for an abrupt moment here, but I need to rebuke something for those who believe that even though they have a relationship with Jesus Christ, their story isn't worth sharing. That is directly from the enemy to get you to not share what he's doing in your life. And as a result of that, it keeps others from hearing and keeps them from pursuing Jesus as well. Of course the enemy wants you to believe that. So if you found yourself saying that, if you found yourself thinking that, but maybe never saying it, but you've operated on that which you've never spoken because you believe the lie, you need to rebuke that thought as that does not come from God. Everybody who has experienced the life-changing work of Jesus has a story to share. And today, we're gonna look at this text that we just read that speaks to this idea that somebody who asks of God and experiences doubt should not expect to receive anything. Because such a person is like a mist driven by a storm, going each way that the storm might direct, never being able to decide for itself where it should go, from perspective to perspective, to opinion to opinion, always waffling in what they say they believe. Such a person who prays with that kind of doubt is like that mist. It is also true that even it's, you're given a name. You're being told that you're double-minded in all that you do, that, that you have two things about you. You're never standing in one place. You care about two things, and they're at war with the other, always waffling between value systems. Do I live for myself and what I think, or do I live for God? Such a person who doubts is like that. Which the reason why we're given this warning is because doubt can debilitate one's faith if you choose to embrace it as the lens by which you look at life. You hear me when I say that? You understand that doubt can debilitate you and your faith if you choose to hold on to it as the primary foundation by how you interpret and look at the rest of the world and life. This passage is a warning of what I've read so far, is a warning towards doubt becoming such a lens. But there's also another thing I need to create caution over. As this passage can be misinterpreted or a narrower interpretation and used in such a way that it creates a dilemma of faith or a stigma between believers regarding doubt. And what do I mean by this? When people might interact with you, and we're talking about Christians. I'm not talking about the world right now. But those within Christendom, and they hear that you've been praying for healing or praying for something that's like a miracle, and it doesn't happen. What often gets used in that moment is, well, you didn't believe when you prayed. You didn't pray with faith. You doubted, and so therefore God didn't. And this gets used as a weapon to belittle, belittle believers between themselves. Something you're praying for doesn't come to fruition. The immediate response by other believers, well, you must have sinned. Or there's sin, unconfessed sin in your life. Or, or you just didn't believe enough when you pray. Which then if you apply that theologically to its fullest end, says that, if you pray with faith and you confess all sins, then what you pray for, God must. 
You see where I'm going with that? What we have just done is subjected God under the authority of mankind. If we pray with full faith, full belief, without doubt, and we have prayed having confessed our sins, then we are saying that if in that case, you have checked all the boxes and God must. And that's dangerous theology. Even Jesus, who understood the Father, did not struggle with faith, did not struggle with doubt. Even he, when he prayed, he said, Father, take this cup from me. He did not want this cup to happen in the moment, the intensity of the moment. He wanted the will of God. Don't get me wrong, but he was feeling that motion that says, I don't want to go through the crucifixion. I don't want to have to go through the torture the next day. But what does he say? Not my will, yours be done. Three times he prays that. It had nothing to do with his lack of faith or doubt. It's the reality of the situation. There are things that we wish differently, but things must go forward according to as God's planned. And so not always is it true that things that we pray for, that even when we have full faith and we don't doubt that God will. Because it's not about your will. It's about his will being done. But here's another reality about doubt. Who actually prays for doubt? But yet, there is nobody in this room that is at least older that's given some level of thought. And I recognize that when I was probably a 10-year-old or 11 or 12-year-old, I didn't think very deeply. My level of thinking was pretty shallow. And, uh, and so I get this. But if you're older than that, then you have absolutely experienced doubt. Nobody here has not experienced doubt. Doubt is an emotion that comes uninvited. Just like anger comes uninvited. We see something that we know is not right. Anger comes. We didn't ask for it. It just happens. Sadness comes when something grieves us. We don't ask for it. It happens. It's immediate. It's uninvited. So too is doubt. Doubt comes uninvited. It's not something we've wished for. It happens. And it often happens when something happens in our life that creates a dilemma. Where we thought one thing is true, but we're seeing something else that makes us question the truth that we had. You know what I'm, feel you know what I'm feeling in that? When I say that? Something happens. And often difficult things Especially like in my role, not always does it happen directly to me. I'm talking with people that it's happened to them. And they're saying like, where is God in this? Where is God in this horrific situation? How is it that in this situation God would allow this to happen? Of course doubt comes. It comes uninvited. But what do we do with it? It seems as though that God is shaming in James 1, at least what we've read so far, that he's shaming the idea of doubt. 
But I need us to go to another passage to get a more full picture because it's dangerous to look at just verses 6 to 8 without fuller context. And we're going to go back to verses 2 to 5 at the end of this message. But I need us to go to Jude 1, which is just to the right uh, in your Bibles. Jude chapter 1, and there's only one chapter there. Um, so it's towards the end. Jude is the brother of James, so we're, we're now dealing with brothers here. They're both brothers of Jesus, and they both write on this issue of doubt. James is cautioning somebody, warning somebody from being a doubt-filled individual. But here's what Jude says in regards to doubt. But A little more context, starting in verse 17. It says, Dear friends, remember what the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ foretold. They said to you, in the last times, there will be scoffers who will follow their own ungodly desires. These are people who divide you, who follow mere natural instincts, and do not have the Spirit. But you, dear friends, by building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in God's love as you wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to bring you to eternal life. So all people are waiting for the mercy of God to be allowed eternal life. Verse 22, be merciful to those who doubt. We're all waiting upon the mercy of the Lord, all of us. So nobody should be seen as higher than another in this journey. We're all in need of mercy. And then he says, be merciful to those who doubt. Save others by snatching them from the fire. To others show mercy mixed with fear, hating even the clothing stained by corrupted flesh. So if doubt enters in, what we're being told in response to the doubter, so now he's talking not to the doubter, but to everybody else, be merciful to the doubter. Be merciful. The doubter might, and mercy is, you know, not receiving what we deserve. And so the doubter might re deserve a rebuke. They might deserve a correction that is pretty harsh. They might deserve the head shaking like, I can't believe you're there. But mercy would withhold harsh treatment of the doubter. Mercy would be more gracious in their approach. And mercy would meet them right where they're at in the midst of their doubt. Consider Jesus and how he lived this out. Again, Jesus is our template for how God would do things. So let's put God on the, on the, on the pedestal here for a moment and look at him and see how he handles the doubter. John chapter 20 is a moment where Thomas is doubting. We know him as doubting Thomas. And that might be a bit unfair because it's simply highlighting a moment. Now we know that throughout the days leading up to Jesus coming to Jerusalem to be crucified and to raise again, he multiple times said, I'm going to Jerusalem to die, but on the third day I will raise again. Matthew 16, 21 has it in a single verse, that statement. So all the disciples knew that Jesus was going to Jerusalem to die and to raise again on the third day. But they still struggled to grasp that, to receive that, and to go expecting that, which is why they were surprised by everything that kept happening each and every day of that week while he was in Jerusalem. 
Jesus dies. His disciples scatter. Not there to support him. But they regather because they're feeling alone, isolated, and they're grieving. And so they find grief together. And they're all in a house grieving on the third day. But then news comes from some of the women that the tomb was empty. And that they had heard from a messenger that he is alive. So they're now stirring amongst themselves, considering the moment. Then all of a sudden, Jesus shows up in the room. He encounters them. They now can see him face to face. They now know it's true. And they have to reconcile the fact that over the last couple of days, they've been doubting what Jesus said would happen. But they're before him. They're celebrating him. Jesus leaves. Thomas shows up. He missed the party with Jesus. And when they tell him, Jesus was just here, he's alive. Thomas boldly spoke this moment. He says, unless I can put my fingers where the nails were, unless I can put my hand into his side where that spear went into him, I will not believe. After all of this, Jesus had said, I am going to Jerusalem to die and raise again. And then he does. And all those that Thomas had been with are saying, we just saw him. Thomas did not believe. He suggested something that would be inappropriate for somebody to do towards their rabbi. You don't touch the rabbi. But he demanded the touch to believe. So then... Jesus shows up later. He has the right to say to Thomas, you are a fool, Thomas. You are a fool for not having believed. You are a fool for not even having trusted all these witnesses that saw me. You didn't believe everything I had said prior to this, and now you're even demanding to touch me? Was that how Jesus responded, if you know the story? No. What did Jesus do? He met him at his place of doubt. And as soon as he sees Thomas, he didn't rebuke him. He simply said, Thomas, touch where, my nail, where the nails were. Thomas, put your hand in the side where they thrust the spear into me. Thomas in the moment responds saying, the, my Lord and my God. And Jesus says, you believe because you have seen. But blessed are those who believe who have never seen. But I think there's a moment there with Jesus and Thomas that I think we need to receive. Thomas was the last person to have any room for doubt. He had received all of the evidence that when Jesus speaks, it comes true. He had seen all the miracles. He had heard that Jesus just days before saying, I'm going to die at the hands of the, of the adversaries, but I will come again on the third day. He heard all this and he still doubted. But Jesus didn't rebuke him for all that. What did he do? He mercifully responded to him and allowed him to do that which he shouldn't have done. We know from the story of Thomas that he goes on to be the disciple to go furthest from Jerusalem in advocating for the gospel. So it impacted Thomas's life, the way Jesus responded to him mercifully. Now let's bring it back to 
our lifetime. When you have doubted, did you think in your mind that God was operating with judgment over you and rebuking you? Or was God responding to you in mercy and letting it be an opportunity where your faith could grow? To talk about such a story, I'm going to actually invite Alex Swan out here to tell his story. You know him as our, our lead worship leader here, yeah, but there is a story behind this man that I have really grown to respect. And, uh, and so it was part of the journey of leading worship with you all. We say regularly that worship leaders, when they come out here, are not just telling you what to do. They're actually coming out here to be the first in the room to worship. And then we get to join in. And so there's something to this story you need to hear that allows Alex to be one of the first in the room to worship. So Alex, um, I'm obviously dropping a hint that doubt's been a part of your journey. So why don't you just tell a little bit about that journey and how it plays a part. Sure. So the beginning of my story is really similar to a lot of people in this room. It's just that I heard and believed the gospel in a really early age. My mom shared it with me when I was four, five, six years old, somewhere in that time I heard, and I really believed. I accepted this completely, and I was like, all right, this is the way the world works, and I accepted Jesus. And then, similar to a lot of us, when I hit my early teens, I found myself at a youth conference and really felt like I kind of got it for the first time, the intensity of this. I made a fuller commitment. I remember even at that conference singing the song Glory to God and singing the bridge, take my life and let it be all for you and for your glory. And for the first time, I really got those words. I got how all-encompassing they were, and I, I made that commitment. I think for the first time, take my life, let it all be. Um, later in high school, though, as I just grew as I encountered questions, as I learned more about the world, and as uh, I was exposed to different worldviews, I really struggled to just believe that any of this was true. Uh, I was filled with questions about science and about evolution and how a loving God could send people to hell and the problem of evil. And as I searched for these answers, I read my Bible and I prayed and I found nothing. And I felt nothing. So reading my Bible felt like I was reading a book of fairy tales, and praying in my room felt like I was talking to myself in an empty room. And that all came together, and, and on top of that, I was getting older, I was starting to see all of the shortcomings of the American church, and I just could not reconcile that with what was written in the Bible. So as all of this, as I lived with this doubt for a long time, um, after a while of experiencing it, I just accepted that I couldn't buy into this, that this was too hard to believe. And as much as I wanted to, I didn't invite these feelings of doubt, I didn't buy it. And I, I hit the point where if I was being honest with myself, I considered myself an atheist and said, all right, this is, this is my life now. Hmm. So you mentioned the American church, and uh, I think there's a unique perspective that Alex grew up with. He grew up in Washington, D.C. area. Can you imagine having a view of our country from the lens where all your neighbors, your peers are all connected to some form of government? And we know how government can be. It can be very uh, disillusioning and not very consistent. And the church is in among that. And so it can create the, the issues of doubt. Um, so obviously you, you speak that you had a genuine experience of faith when you were younger. Hmm. 
And then you say you came to a place where you would say, I, I became an atheist. So faith here, come down to the bottom. You bottomed out, uh, and you've now come to a strong place of doubt where you self-declare atheism. What changed it? What created the bounce back up where you began to consider faith once again? Yeah. So at this time, uh, I, in addition to my parents, I was really raised by the church. So my life, my social life, everything was built around our youth group, our church. So I stayed there. Um, and as a result of that, I was constantly being confronted with these things that I no longer believed in. I would sit through sermons and every 30 seconds think to myself, I don't believe this. I don't buy this. And I just had to confront that over and over and over again. So this eventually led to a pretty emotional conversation with my youth pastor at that time. And one of the main things I shared was that I really only felt like I had been a Christian because I was born in America and, the, and I lived through the 21st century. I felt like if I had been born in the Middle East, then I would be Islamic. If I was born in India, I would be Hindu. And I felt like I was only a Christian just based on statistics and geography. And I... That was the types of questions I threw at my youth pastor at the time. Uh, and he didn't really give me any answers, uh, which was really disappointing to me. I thought maybe this guy has it all figured out. Um, what he did give me was permission to ask questions. He was the first person that, as I expressed this to him, he said, you're not doing anything wrong. These questions are allowed to be asked, and he showed mercy to me in this and said, it's okay to doubt, it's okay to ask questions, there's space for this. So as a result of that conversation, I said, okay, I, I guess I'm still willing to try if, if I'm allowed to, if I'm allowed to have space for this. So eventually I read the book of Acts, and I sat down with that, and this book was filled with just as many unbelievable things, miracles and the Holy Spirit and supernatural experiences, and I still had zero proof and nothing that I could point to that could point me towards belief or thinking that any of this is real. Except when I read it, I did come down to, okay, all of the historians, all of the anthropologists, all of the secular science, Everybody agrees that the early church did exist, and it did thrive under the persecution of Rome. And a man named Jesus existed. He had a little bit of a cult following, and around 30 AD, he died, and uh, his followers started preaching that he was the Messiah, that he was risen from the dead. So I didn't need to believe anything supernatural to get on board with all of that. These things happened, and everybody from Josephus to the Roman government agreed that these things happened. Uh, fast forward, 300 years later, in 313, the Edict of Milan is issued, and Christianity and the early church is finally made legal. And 10 years beyond that, Christianity is the official religion of the Roman Empire. And in between that time of Jesus' followers saying, this guy rose from the dead and he's the Messiah, and then Christianity being accepted as a major worldview in Rome, everything that could have possibly happened to squash this movement happened. Everything that should have happened to squash this moment happened. Emperor Nero in the 60s was arresting and torturing and killing Christians, and the public image for Christianity was not good. People thought that communion was cannibalism. They thought that Christianity was this weird cult. Um, Christians were blamed for the great fire of Rome in 64 AD. This was a weird cult filled, filled with cannibals and terrorists. It was not popular. This was not a popular underdog story that really attracted people. And yet it exploded. 
And what that meant to me reading it was that I had no explanation for why Christianity survived, for why it thrived, and why I sat in church hearing about this man 2,000 years later. But the book of Acts laid out a roadmap that still sounded crazy, but it said that those followers of Jesus were confronted with a divine intervention, that they were given a Holy Spirit, that they walked in divine power to spread this message in spite of every single natural obstacle to the ends of the earth. And it still was so hard to believe, but I couldn't quite believe that there was nothing else happening, that it just happened to work. This, this insane story that was given to these early followers, and then you were arrested and killed and unpopular for it, and it exploded. And it went through everybody, and this message of hope was received by people who immediately, upon hearing it, said, I'm willing to die for this. This is the most important thing. So as I looked at this, suddenly I had questions about my faith that science and history couldn't answer. So the trajectory shifted. You're no longer on the downslope. You're on the upslope. You're now leading worship of a God you cannot see, of a God you cannot touch, and you do so in this room first, often in each week. So your faith has been solidified, and I know you as a man of God, a man of faith, not as a person of doubt, but ultimately something had to come into that, so this is what shifted away from staying in that place of non-belief and beginning to become believing again. What solidified? Hmm. So I really, you know, when I identified as an atheist, I really felt like, okay, I've got it. I've got a natural explanation for everything. So this book of Acts threw quite a wrench in that, and I couldn't come up with a natural explanation of it. And this led me to walking alongside mentors and brothers and sisters, and this kind of led me back to belief. Not quite faith, but belief with a lot of doubting moments along the way. And I still struggled and still struggle uh, with a lot of doubting moments. Um, A lot of times I would just feel like Christianity is this big sociology experiment, that this is a weird quirk of humanity. Um... But as I went through time, those moments that I didn't have explanations for, that I had felt so confident there was natural explanations for everything, I kept running into moments where I didn't have that. And I kept hearing stories from brothers and sisters in Christ and mentors in Christ that I didn't have natural explanations for. So nowadays, when I look back on just the past 10 to 12 years, um, I just don't have natural explanations for the things that God has done, for the doors that he's opened and the relationships that he's redeemed. And I get to say that now at 26 years old. So old. So old. (laughs) Very young is the point I'm making. (laughs) At 26 years old. And and I've heard these stories. And then I hear these stories from brothers and sisters in their 30s and in their 40s and in their 50s. And this morning we sang, All My Life You Have Been Faithful. And all my life you have been so, so good. And I look around the church on a Sunday morning as we sing those words, and I see saints in their 90s singing those words with just this unshakable confidence, and it's not blind faith. They're singing this as a result of things they've seen and the ways that God has revealed himself to them, that God has proven to them that he is who he says he is, And that the things he says about his character are true. And as I grow older, I have more and more of these moments to look back on. So what ultimately solidified is being living living out what the psalmist says in Psalm 77. It says, to this I will appeal, the years when the Most High stretched out his right hand. 
I will remember the deeds of the Lord. I will remember your miracles of long ago. I will consider your works and meditate on your mighty deeds. These stories of what God has done that I don't have any other explanation for. And one of my kind of really solidifying moments uh, was after college, I spent some time in Israel, was able to go over there, and I had really struggled with reading the Bible and feeling like it was a book of fairy tales, and suddenly I was standing in the setting of this book that I had once thought was fictional. And I'm sitting there, like, looking at the Sea of Galilee and accepting, okay, I'm a Christian because something happened here. And it's really hard for me to believe that fire came down from heaven and burned up on Mount Carmel, but I've stood on Mount Carmel. That 10%, that little bit of solidifying has helped me so much. I took rocks back from Israel and keep them in my office. And when I read these passages of scripture and I go, that's just so hard for me to get on board with, but I've got dirt from that place sitting on my office. I've been there. The setting is real. Something happened. So it's not that much further of a leap for me to believe that God is who he says he is when I've heard these other stories and I don't have explanations other than God. So David writing that Psalm 77 where he was having a moment and his trial was he had really messed up. Hmm. And the, the pain of the discipline was such that he wondered if would God ever respond to him again and he was hmm. struggling. And so he found comfort in pulling back from the stories of old to give him confidence in the present. So with that in mind, what would you say to someone that's struggling with doubt? Like, what have you found that's helped you as you deal with doubt that comes uninvited even yeah. today? So the first thing coming right off of that Psalm 77 is that God has given us permission to doubt and to ask questions. The way he met Thomas and he said, all right, this is what you need to see to believe. I'm here for you. The way he met me and said, all right, this is what you need to see to believe. Uh, in Psalm 77, immediately after that, I will consider all your works and meditate on your mighty deeds. The psalmist says, will the Lord reject forever? Will he never show his favor again? Has his unfailing love vanished forever? Has his promise failed for all time? Has God forgotten how to be merciful? Has he in anger withheld his compassion? These psalms are the instruction manual for how we're to worship God, given to us by God, and within it are these hard, intense questions and intense moments of doubt. This is our language for doubting. By definition, God is beyond our comprehension, so he has mercy and is compassionate with us when we can't comprehend. Because of who he is, because he is holy and set apart and beyond us, he gives us permission to be human in the presence of God. He interacts with us and pursues that. So he meets us in that time. The um, second thing that I really felt coming out of that is what, what started me on this is this, this lack of feeling like God was true. And God has really grown in me, especially through the Psalms, this, this important truth that faith is not a feeling. It's not an emotion. And the times when it feels like God isn't real or what he said isn't true... These are the times that we feel like we're failing at faith, but Hebrews 11 tells us that faith is the substance of things that we don't see. It tells us that in these moments of wilderness where it feels like God is furthest away and it feels like he's inactive and we don't have any faith, these are often the moments where we are being most spiritually formed, where God is closest and he is doing the most work. That's what we see in the beginning of James 1 is that consider it joy when you face trials of many kinds because this wilderness, this lack of feeling, this testing of your faith 
it produces perseverance. And God is at work in you. So for me, accepting, okay, faith is not the opposite of doubt. Any more than bravery is the opposite of fear or sadness is the opposite of joy. These are tensions that we hold together, that we live with both of them, and Jesus gives us permission. But the encouragement that we have is what the psalmist has modeled for us. It's to look back on what God has done. Usually when this doubt creeps back in, when it shows up uninvited, I get so caught up in the questions I have now and the trials that I face now. But when I look back, and I remember the last time I was in this situation, things clarify a lot more. I remember the things that God has done in my past that I don't have any other explanation for. And when I see what he's done in the lives of other believers and in the lives of myself, then I can rest a lot easier in God's faithfulness to his character and his existence. Amen. Thank you, Alex, for sharing your story. Would you give him a hand, please? Thank you. Thank you. Alex referenced James 1 again, so I want, you, want us to go back there. Because I said we started in the middle of something, and we did. But I think that's to prove a point. Most of us know about the correction of doubt from James 1. But very few of us know the context by which he said it. So now, let's pick up the context of when James said, the double-minded man, the unstable one, is the one who doubts. So verse 2 gives us the connection. It says, consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. So there's an acknowledgement from James that, listen, the difficult things in life, the trials in life, are going to test your faith. They're going to make you feel like I'm in need of help. And so it's going, by the testing of that faith, though, verse 3 says, it will produce perseverance in your faith. So verse 4, let perseverance then finish its work, so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking in anything. If you then lack wisdom, you should ask of God, who gives generously with, to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt, because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. So the trial invites doubt, but not you yourself. You haven't invited it. It happens. But this trial then is the testing of your faith. Can you come out of the trial, the testing, stronger in faith? James acknowledges there's going to come a point in the trial or the challenge of your faith where you're going to lack direction in it. And he says, ask of God. Ask of God. And do not jump to the doubt without remembering what he says just before that. He says, ask of God who gives generously to all without what? Finding fault. You see, God is even in this text when speaking and confronting the person who doubts is saying, I want you to come to me in the midst of your doubt. I want you to ask of me in the midst of your doubt. And I will do so generously respond and without finding fault. 
that's mercy. That is mercy right there. So when I, to walk out of this room this, this day, I want to give you three keys to overcoming doubt with faith. Number one, when in the midst of the trial, keep going to God asking questions. Where doubt begins to win is when we withhold the questions and we start resolving it within ourselves. Or we let the words of another, when they hear you doubting, shout you down so that you feel shame and guilt, but there is no uh, opportunity to keep asking questions. Keep going to God, asking questions. Remember the man who asked for God, for Jesus to heal his child and, and the child wasn't there, and, and Jesus' response to the request was, do you believe? And the man says, yes, I do believe, but help my unbelief. And what did Jesus do? He healed the child. You see, God is merciful. This man simply acknowledged what he had, and that was doubt. There was unbelief there, but Jesus, to help him, did something pretty amazing and miraculous. There is always a different way by how God responds to our doubt, but in the journey, he recognizes that as you go through it, if you continue to rely upon him and you ask of him, it is going to lead to perseverance in your faith and a maturity. The second key is this. Handle mercy with doubt. I'm sorry, handle <laughs> Flip that. <laughs> Handle doubt with mercy. Handle doubt with mercy. Not only mercy towards another who's doubting, but mercy towards yourself. Give yourself permission to ask the question, but give yourself permission to ask God the question. And know that as you're going to God, and it says if you're lacking understanding or wisdom, go to him. He will generously respond without finding faults in you. So therefore, knowing that he is merciful, we're simply taking his lead. Because under mercy, the journey towards belief and faith continues. Without mercy, there's only judgment and shame, and you tend to then hold on to your doubt as the new platform or lens of your life. And that will debilitate faith. Lastly, it says we're to ask of God. Well, what should you ask for? Maybe you should just simply ask for faith. Ask for faith. It says in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, that God is the giver of the gift of faith. So ask him for it. Ask for that faith that can be sure of what you hope for and certain of what you do not see that Hebrews 11.1 1 says. We can't see God. We can't touch God. But we can come to a place of assurance and belief that is by faith because it's been given as a gift from God. So ask for it. And then know this. In John chapter 20, when he respond, Jesus responded to Timothy. You are blessed. You are blessed to know and have faith. But even more blessed are those who believe without having seen and have faith. So for those of us that are living 2,000 years after Jesus' resurrection, we are blessed to have faith. I'm not gonna conclude this sermon with prayer like I usually do. 
I'm going to ask us all to conclude this sermon by declaring with our mouths what we believe as a solidification of our faith. So would you stand? We're going to sing a song called We Believe. We've sung it here before, and it makes testament and testimony to what we hold on to in the times of our doubts.
Do I need to say anything else? What do we believe? We believe what we just said there. None of us have seen Jesus. At least not that I'm aware of unless we had a movie made about you saying and something about heaven. But we've not seen Jesus, but we believe. We have faith. That doesn't mean that there aren't moments where that doubt comes uninvited. But what God wants is for you to bring that doubt to him. He is merciful. He is merciful. He wants to work in your life. And he recognizes doubt is going to be part of the journey. And therefore, when he wants to see your faith renewed, strengthened, and perseverant, it usually means going through the fire and learning anew our reliance upon him. And therefore, faith thrives all the more. If you would like to talk to someone this morning in regards to the issue of faith or doubt or just maybe whatever burden might be upon your heart, we'll have people in the encounter room who would be glad to pray with you. But let me give you this final word that comes from Jude at the very end of his book. He says this, To him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you before his glorious presence without finding fault, with great joy to the only God, our Savior, be glory, majesty, power, and authority through Jesus Christ our Lord before all ages, now and forevermore. Amen. Go in the peace of Christ, relying upon him as the author and perfecter of our faith. Amen. You are dismissed.